everyone. Welcome to the Acrobatic Arts Podcast. I'm Loren, and I will be interviewing some of the top leaders and innovators from the dance and acrobatic industry. If you are a teacher, performer, student, or a lifelong learner like myself, you are sure to find these episodes intriguing and full of inspiration. Acrobatic Arts is passionate about providing current and relevant information for everyone. So please, sit back and enjoy as we share our passion with you and the world. The Acrobatic Arts Podcast is sponsoring an exciting dance competition that's online. It's called the International Online Dance Competition. Compete with videos you already have. It's judged by industry experts from Cirque du Soleil, La 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 Human Steps, Broadway Underground, Bollywood, and the Bolshoi Ballet. Be seen by an audience of tens of thousands. Receive feedback and win. Submit your dance videos on the IODC website between May 5th to June 5th. Only $5 per video entry with over $10,000 worth in prizes to win. For more information, visit iodc.online. The Acrobatic Arts Podcast is a proud sponsor of this event, and we encourage our listeners to apply. Hypermobility disorders. This is a huge topic, and we are so lucky to have Dr. Linda Bluestein here today to explain the different categories and conditions that are associated with joint hypermobility. Hi, I'm Dr. Linda Bluestein. I am an anesthesiologist. I am the Chief Medical Officer of Wisconsin Integrative Pain Specialists. I work with a lot of dancers and I specialize in hypermobility disorders. Hypermobility disorders are when a person has joint hypermobility and they have symptoms related to that hypermobility. They may have a syndromic type condition, so they may have a genetic disorder, a very specific condition related to their joint hypermobility, or they may have joint hypermobility and symptoms, but they don't fall into a specific genetic category. There are hundreds of conditions that are associated with joint hypermobility. There's hundreds of genetic conditions, I should say, that are associated with joint hypermobility many of which we can diagnose based on genetics, but unfortunately the most common one, which is called hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, the most common one does not have a genetic marker found yet. And most of us believe that it won't be one marker, it will probably be multiple markers that once we figure this out more specifically. So right now the diagnosis of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a clinical diagnosis. Most people will fall into hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or something called hypermobility spectrum disorder. So in 2017, we were introduced to new terms, new classification by the International Consortium on Ehlers-Danlos Syndromes and Related Disorders. So these are the terms that we use now. We do not use numbers anymore for the different types of EDS. We don't use um, JHS, which was uh, Joint Hypermobility Syndrome. That's not a term that we use anymore. Uh, people were using BJHS, Benign Joint Hypermobility Syndrome. It's really nice because now we have specific criteria. These are published. There's a whole series of articles on these things in the 2017 American Journal of Genetics, the uh, supplementary 
think it was Supplement C. There's, a, there's I think, 18 articles that were published mid-March of 2017. So these disorders, the hypermobile EDS, which is one of the more common of the hereditary disorders of connective tissue, and then hypermobility spectrum disorder, which is not a genetic condition, that's hypermobility with symptoms, we can kind of think of those as being on a continuum where on the very far end of the continuum you have joint hypermobility without any symptoms and then as you start getting into hypermobility with symptoms now you're looking at people who if they don't have a specific genetic condition they would fall under hypermobility spectrum disorder and if people have symptoms that are more consistent with a genetic condition and then don't have reasons to be concerned that they might have vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, most of the time they'll be diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. The three core features of that are the joint hypermobility, the second one is skin hyperextensibility, so a place that we often will check that is at the volar aspect of the forearm, and then the third thing that we see is uh, fragile tissues. So there are certain features that we look for when we think a person might have a systemic um, condition where their connective tissue is weak, again, as opposed to they have joint hypermobility and they have some symptoms, but we don't think that they have weak connective tissue. Some of those things would be, for example, piezogenic papules of the heel. That's when you can see little outpouchings of fat um, at the heel, and um, that's something that you often will see. They often will have positive uh, wrist signs, so they can wrap their hand all the way around their wrist, and then positive thumb signs, so they can actually, their thumb will actually stick out past their um, fingers, and their wingspan relative to their height will be greater than 1.05. So these are some different things that we can look for to see if we think that the person has a genetic condition. More commonly though, people will have what's called hypermobility spectrum disorder. So with hypermobility spectrum disorder, they can have basically all of the same symptoms. And this is where, in my practice, I focus on treating symptoms and not labels. So whether they have the hypermobile EDS or hypermobility spectrum disorder, diagnosis, doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I'm going to treat their symptoms. So whether they have abdominal pain, bloating, um, GI symptoms are very common. So they might have something called gastroparesis, which is where they get full very easily, early satiety, they get very full. So after they eat, they feel like um, they can't really finish a meal. They might get nausea after they eat. Um, constipation is a very common symptom. Fatigue is a very common symptom. Oftentimes they'll have sleep problems, so they'll have difficulty falling asleep. Sleep problems are common in teenagers, so you have to kind of distinguish, is this something beyond, you know, just kind of more normal sleep problems. With teenagers, their circadian rhythm is a little bit off, so they have a little bit of uh, shifting going on. So if they fall asleep at midnight and wake up at you know 8, 9, 10, but they feel rested, then that just means that probably during the school uh, week, they're getting sleep, a little bit of sleep deprivation. If they have an actual sleep disorder, and it could be for a variety of reasons in these conditions, then they're waking up a lot during the night and no matter, even if they get a, a really good night's sleep on the weekend, they still feel really crummy. So sleep disorders are really common, fatigue is really common, gastrointestinal symptoms are very common, um, headaches are very, very common and can have a whole lot of different causes. But the most common symptom is pain, and pain is, pre is present in 90 to 100% of people who have hypermobility spectrum disorder. 
And so this is something that we need to be very aware of and we need to really look at what does the pain look like and where do they have pain. There's three different types of pain. There's nociceptive pain which is related to actual or potential tissue damage. So that could be chemical, it could be um, thermal, or it could be mechanical. So that, a good example of that would be um, if, you, if you burn your hand or something. That is a nociceptive pain problem. The second category is neuropathic pain. So that's related to pain that's inside the nervous system or related to damage of the nervous system. So a really good example of that is um, it's really common to have pain after an amputation. Also, if people are familiar with diabetic neuropathy, that's another type of pain or trigeminal neuralgia. Um, those are some different neuropathic types of pain. And then the third type of pain is um, centrally mediated pain. And the term that we now are using for that is called nociplastic pain. So that's pain where the nervous system itself is processing the pain signals inappropriately and kind of amplifying those pain signals. And what happens is people get the, um, something called hyperalgesia and allodynia. So hyperalgesia is where something that is normally a little bit painful is a lot painful. And allodynia is where something that is normally not painful at all is painful. For example, sheets touching a person's foot. And so this is where oftentimes families will think this person must be crazy because if they say that it hurts for sheets to touch their foot, like how could that possibly be? It's because of dysfunction in the nervous system. People who have these types of disorders, hypermobility spectrum disorders or Ehlers-Danlos syndromes or any of these disorders related to hypermobility. So again, the biggest umbrella is hypermobility disorders. And under that umbrella, we have all of these other subcategories and the hypermobility spectrum disorder category is a, that's a big basket a lot of people will fall into that basket the other baskets are smaller within this category people will still have a lot of those other things that I that I had mentioned and they could also have what's called dysautonomia or dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system whether you have um, hypermobile EDS or you have hypermobile uh, hypermobility spectrum disorder, you can have dysautonomia, and that's where your autonomic nervous system doesn't function as well as it should. And when you have that, there's overlapping symptoms like the gastrointestinal symptoms or the sleep problems. Those can be related to the dysautonomia. So that can be very challenging to, to sort out. The other thing that people can often have is something called mast cell activation syndrome, and that is where the mast cells are reacting inappropriately to all kinds of things in the environment. So it could be related to um, different uh, fragrances or uh, chemicals. I have patients who say, I was doing really great until I went to uh, you know, Target and was walking down the aisle with all of the smelly soaps and that caused a reaction. And I have patients who um, have all kinds of flushing that goes on in different parts of their body and they'll go to their doctor and their doctor has no idea what to do with them. And this is related to, the, oftentimes related to this mast cell problem. Stress is a huge activator of mast cells. So stress aggravates pain, stress aggravates dysautonomia, and stress aggravates mast cell activation. So learning stress management techniques is very, very helpful. So things like learning mindfulness techniques, Learning about meditation can be very, very helpful. And it's important to understand that, 
that's it's working those types of strategies are working in a physiologic way this is not oh this is in your head so go do these things that when you meditate and you get yourself into that space you're causing physiologic changes in your body that have beneficial effects without side effects so nobody ever overdosed on meditation unlike medications or you know even supplements all those things have potential side effects when I work with dancers who have these types of disorders I take an approach that I call uh, men's PMMS so that stands the first M stands for movement so movement is absolutely critical in getting people to recover as much function as possible when they have hypermobility disorders I want people to first move well and then I want them to move more. So we would look at neural retraining and working on improving their proprioception and work on stabilization type exercises, not just let's go do more and more and more stretching. We want to have joint stabilization and um, control all throughout the range of motion. I like to work with people in the pool actually because what's, what's important to do is work on like co-contraction of muscles and they can do exercises in the pool where you know you can do some pretty simple things like moving in the pool moving an extremity back and forth you're working now against the resistance of the water that you just moved this way now it's even harder to move back the other way and so if you do that motion you're creating more stability in your shoulder for example those are some pretty easy exercises. It's pretty hard to hurt yourself in the pool. I mean, you could do it obviously, you can hurt yourself anywhere, but that's a way that people can offload their joints. In the pool, you get that compression from the water, which helps proprioception. So getting in the water is beneficial that way. And when you're in the water, you can actually get your muscles to work harder and put less strain on your joints. So that's one type of um, thing that I do. I do a lot of other things with people with movement in general either Pilates, gyrotonics, um, working with uh, you know different body work uh, people as physical therapists, occupational therapists, etc. Those are really important. Letter E is for education. So I believe that once people understand more about these disorders they will have less fear and they will understand oh this is why things are happening the way that they are and so they can be more empowered and they will take the steps that they need to take in order to help themselves feel better. So I believe that education is critically important. The next letter is N for nutrition. So nutrition is critically important. Um, although there's no one size fits all, there are some basic principles that are true for everyone. So for example, nobody benefits from more sugar. <laughs> um, you know, most of us eat more sugar than we need. And if we can eat less sugar, we can have less inflammation in our body. We want to achieve a balance. And if somebody has, um, if there's a concern for an eating disorder, then absolutely a team approach is necessary because we want to make sure that we don't exacerbate that eating disorder, of course. Um, but we want to make sure that we address things like the sugar. Some people do well with uh, avoiding gluten. Some people do well with avoiding dairy. Um, sometimes low FODMAP is beneficial for those gastrointestinal symptoms. Sometimes a low glutamate diet is helpful. And it's important for people to realize with these dietary changes that it's not necessarily forever, that we make these changes and we work on getting them feeling better. And then you can try testing yourself, adding things back in and seeing how you feel. And you know, people will then usually decide, oh, I need to eliminate this forever or you know, test again later, but for now I'm gonna keep it out of my diet. So nutrition is very, very important. The next letter is S, and that is for sleep. 
So sleep is very important. We want to get regain control over sleep as best we possibly can. And I prefer to work with sleep hygiene as the number one thing. So many people sleep with the phone under their pillow. And that is so bad for us, and especially if you have you know, Wi-Fi turned on or your cellular turned on, that's really not a good thing. So many of us, myself included sometimes, look at the screens right before bed, um, and that's telling our pineal gland, you know, it's daytime, um, don't produce melatonin. So melatonin, yes, it's a supplement, but we produce it naturally from our pineal gland. If you're looking at your screen and you get that blue light, it's going to be telling you it's daytime. You know, if you think about it, our ancestors did not have sleep problems, <laughs> not to the degree that we do now. Well, they were using oil and, you know, uh, working with very limited evening hours. Okay, so that was M-E-N-S, uh, P. P is for psychosocial. So these conditions involve the, not only the whole person, but they actually involve often the whole family. The whole family can be affected because the health of one person will affect the health of other people. Um, oftentimes I've had moms bring their daughters in for an appointment, teenage daughters, and the mom looks terrible. Like they're not sleeping either, right? They're, we, when our children are feeling pain and, and they're having these symptoms, we feel it also. They will often be really struggling. And as the um, you know, teen gets feeling better, I can see the mom is looking better too. You know? So we want to address the whole family. We want to make sure that we address any cognitive issues that are going on, for example, pain catastrophizing, thinking that the worst is going to happen. Um, catastrophizing is, is you know, basically uh, the world is coming to an end, right? So in the pain context, this can happen quite easily. We want to be sure to address mood disorders like depression, anxiety. You know, we want to make sure to involve uh, counseling because this is an integral part of treatment. This is something that is very, very important. I try to explain to people that this does not mean that I think it's in your head at all, but pain signals and our emotions are all processed in the brain. So we, we can't separate them out. The mind and the body are not separate. They are all one and the same. And so we, we cannot improve one without improving the other. So that was the men's PMMS. Okay, so the next M is for modalities. So it could be a variety of different things. It could be ultrasound, it could be TENS. Um, there's a whole lot of different things that people will use. Acupuncture, acupressure. So I try to emphasize to people that oftentimes they're looking for one thing to, to fix the whole problem, and it's not usually one thing. Of course, by the time they've gotten to me, it's definitely not going to be one thing, one single thing. So with these modalities and, and with all of these treatments in general, I talk often about the 10% rule. If you can get 10% improvement from one thing and another 5% from another and another 3 from another and then another 2, now that's 20%. If you get another 5, another 5, you know, now you're starting to get 30%. So now you're starting to see meaningful improvement. And I feel like oftentimes people make the cognitive and cognitively they're thinking there's one thing out there that's going to fix me and that's usually not the case so modalities can be very very beneficial the next M is for medications medications can be a whole variety of different things I rarely prescribe opioids in fact in fact I don't think I've ever started anyone on opioids because opioids are in the chronic pain setting really not the right thing and especially for people with hypermobility disorders there's a lot of problems that can come from opioids they actually sensitize the nervous system so they cause that hyperalgesia and allodynia that I was mentioning and they can actually they can cause depression so they are depressants of the 
of the nervous system, that can make things worse. And they're deactivating, so they cause people to be less engaged in the process. I don't use opioids really. So I use a variety of different medications. Um, I focus a lot on, um, a lot of times again by the time that they start seeing me, they've already tried a lot of different things. So maybe they've tried the anti-epileptics, gabapentin or pregabalin. Sometimes they'll say that they're allergic to that because they tried it and it was too high of a dose because you need to slowly start those and then increase the dose. Um, and sometimes different like antidepressants can be used. I use something called low-dose naltrexone not infrequently. That's an anti-opioid actually and that can help through improving the immune system, improving the um, endogenous release of opioids, so that's uh, us releasing our own uh, opioids and it increases the sensitivity of the receptors to opioids. So I like to use that. That has to be compounded because the lowest dose that the pharmacy or the pharmaceutical company, excuse me, makes is 50 milligrams. And we started at 1.5 milligrams usually. And so those are some different medications though that, um, that we use. And then supplements is the other category, which of course are over the counter. But it's important for people to know how to use supplements appropriately. Supplements can be very helpful with managing these conditions, but you need to really know which supplements to use, when to use them. Some can be guided by lab, uh, laboratory measurements, but most of them do not. Quality also matters a lot. Um, these are not FDA controlled, so you can end up buying something that doesn't have anything in it. I use something called Consumer Lab, consumerlab.com. It's a su subscription service, and so I can look on there and look at different brands and make sure that they've it's a brand that they've tested. This is an independent um, site that is supported by their members. So they test all these different supplements. I will recommend to my patients, not just specific doses, but specific brands as well, just to try to make it so that they're more effective. But most of the time through this, this approach, this men's PMMS, um, patients can get significantly better. So although there's not one single thing, there's no one cure or anything like that, people can usually get greatly improved function through doing these different strategies, many of which are available to people without a prescription. But they just need to get the right team together and start taking some of the steps in order to start feeling better and improving their function. Thank you so much, Dr. Linda Bluestein. Listeners, if you or someone you know is suffering from a hypermobility disorder, please find a doctor who specializes in this area. Together, you can figure out the best way to manage pain and ease the symptoms. Thanks for listening, everyone, and have a great day.